Welcome to Pixel Chasing, the podcast where we talk to fascinating people about the most exciting and disruptive trends affecting our world today. With a focus on innovation, science and technology, we engage with the trailblazers and influencers who are taking an active role in shaping our future and signposting the current winds of change. So whether you're walking the dog, looking for some background content for your workout, or are simply looking to learn from experts in their fields, there'll be something for you on Pixel Chasing. to Pixel Chasing. I am your host Mike Marciano and in today's episode I am delighted to catch up with Lee Polisano. For those of you who know architecture, Lee will need no introduction, but for those who don't, let me tell you a bit about him. Lee is an internationally recognized architect and the founding partner and president of PLP Architecture. He's known for his urban design work which emphasizes an underlying concern for sustainability and a passion for innovation. Lee has been responsible for creating numerous award-winning buildings and is widely recognised for pushing boundaries and bringing innovation to the industry. His extensive global experience includes a focus on the luxury residential market, hospitality, high-rise, urban redevelopment and workplace sectors. He's a frequent lecturer, advises both public and private institutions, serves as a global governing trustee for the Urban Land Institute and is passionately involved with several charitable organisations. I had a wonderful time speaking with Lee. And in advance, I want to apologise for what was a slightly croaky voice on my behalf and some dodgy internet. Happy listening. Good afternoon, Lee. How are you? Good afternoon, Michael. I'm doing very well, actually. Thank you for asking. Yeah, I'm very well. delighted to hear that. Uh, thank you ever so much for joining me this evening on, on the podcast. And I've been very, very excited to get this chance to sit down with you. But uh, given the nature of your industry and your job, you're a hard man to pin down in different continents and countries on a regular basis, which is why you are a particularly interesting and fascinating person to speak with. So I am very, very appreciative of your time today. So thank you in advance for uh, any wisdom you'll be imparting with the listeners today. It's a pleasure to be with you. <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, I've only got an hour uh, and there's a lot I'd like to talk about. One thing I like to try and communicate to, to the listeners is around really the individual behind the persona, uh, the person who uh, has risen the ranks to where they are in their career and how they got there. So I was wondering if I could ask you as, as a starter is how did you get into your profession? Was, was your career success as, as we see today inevitability? or is there a, a slightly more winding path towards where you are? Well, I think in some ways, um, I was always destined in some way to be influenced by my childhood, my mother. Um, and um, that sort of created a path of curiosity for me around building things. So uh, both of my grandfathers were builders, um, my mother encouraged us as very, very young children to be inquisitive and to um, to express that uh, inquisitive nature by building things. Um, and so from a very, very young age, I always had a um, some piece of material, be it a piece of wood or a brick or something else in my hand. And, um, and I always did things uh, physically putting things together. Um, as I said, my grandfathers were also uh, contractors and my uh, 
paternal grandfather had this wonderful collection of tools, uh, ancient tools um, that he he had and that he he um, he shared with me. And each of them was a different instrument for how you make things, uh, block planes and traditional tools, handmade hammers and things like that. And all of those uh, tools began again to spark my curiosity and my interest in, in making things. So um, that happened at a very, very young age. I have to say when I embarked on a university career, uh, I, I swayed away from that, studied geology for a little while, uh, took some time out to um, explore Europe. Um, and in doing that, um, basically rekindled an interest in, 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 the, in buildings and the built environment through a very inspirational time there. And that led me to study architecture. On, on that point around the influence being primarily through how you were, you were brought up, when you, and I want to show my age here, when you look at the kids today and you see youngsters predominantly on iPads or on devices or in front of screens, does that fill you with a sense of excitement because they're being exposed to technology at a very young, at a very young age? Or do you think it uh, cripples creativity because there is a lack of, as you sort of alluded to, physical interaction and manipulation with things in the real world? Yeah, I, I think it's a, a mixed emotion for me. Um, I uh, come from a generation that shares a a strong uh, belief in lifelong learning. Um, and I think my success and my ability to do the things I, I do um, and my interest in in, in future and, and what it holds and how we get there comes from uh, this lifelong learning concept. And I, I think um, that needs to be enabled at a very, very young age. Um, that curiosity and that continuous quest for knowledge and learning. Um, of course, it gets disrupted uh, as, as you move through different phases of your life. You raise a family, you do other kinds of things. Um, but, but it is an essential ingredient um, for creative people. And, and I think for any individual who, you know, who wants to live a, uh, a fruitful and enjoyable life, no matter what you do. Uh, so when I see young people very, very immersed in um, in iPads and things like that, I, I, I wonder sometimes, are they taking the easy way or are they actually, you know, using it as, as a way to really explore what the potential and the possibilities um, that the digital world and connected to this, you know, extensive network of technology and information can provide for you. Um, and so that that's my first question. Um, I, I think using it as an enjoyment or just spending time on it um, is uh, one thing. But if you're using it as a tool to really open your mind and explore the possibilities in the world, that's another. So I'm torn between um, that. And that's my that's what I that's my takeaway when I see people immersed in it. And of course, we use technology here um, extensively and we provide it as a platform for creativity but our biggest sort of uh, takeaway to everybody using it is 
explore its possibilities, open your mind, and don't take the easy route uh, to problem solving and, and use it in, in that way. So, yeah, I think it's a bit of both for me. Yeah. Like all things, you know, a knife can be used to create art or it can be used to be destructive. So the, the tool really is with the intention of the person behind it. So I can cut iPads and I've got young children sometimes and I see them play coding games i get super excited and i watch them watch sort of youtube videos i get a bit despondent so it's about encouraging the former and, and, and not the latter yeah. when you speak there's most definitely a philosophical undertone to how you have approached everything so far in this very short part of the conversation to what extent have you brought those philosophies into your workplace and was that always something you're aware of going into the industry and entering a an environment that was very very physical and possibly filled with many people with a traditional way of thinking look i i don't think you sort of come by a complete understanding of what we do uh, unless you spend um, you know quite a long time doing it and, and thinking about it and you know you reach a point in your career where you actually really begin to appreciate and understand um, the implications of, uh, of creating something that uses a lot of the Earth's resources and is intended to be a permanent fixture in, um, in the built environment, you know, for a very, very long time. And, and then when you realize that we as architects uh, and designers uh, create places that people are born in, they're educated within them, Think about a school and how long, how many hours people spend in school designing the right environment that also can influence the way you learn it is quite, you know, quite a point of pressure if you really begin to think about it. Um, you know, people live in the buildings, they grow up in them, they die in them, they're born in them. So um, when you think about the fact that, that what we do uh, has an intrinsic impact on the lives of everybody that touches uh, a building. And each and every one of us must use buildings to live in and to work in and to do everything else. It's impossible to do it outdoors. Um, when you think about that, it brings with it uh, a certain philosophical approach to how you go about you know, your, 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 your profession. Uh, and so I, I look at it uh, that way, I look at that as a responsibility. I, um, I've come to understand more and more about the extractive nature of what we do and how important it is to, um, to rethink that um, and, um, and the impact that that has on, 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 on climate change and on other things as well. But um, I, I think, you know, on one hand, it's very, very exciting uh, to, 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 to deal with some of the things we deal with, uh, but also it's very challenging and I think it brings with quite a bit of responsibility. I concur with all of that. And obviously the physical space has a dramatic influence on how we live our physical lives. To what extent have we fully democratized those benefits across wider society? Uh, the sorts of buildings that you're often involved with uh, are not the usual, they're not the norms, and they're not where most people will spend their time working or living or playing. Is there a increasing visible distinction 
between the haves and the haves not of physical spaces those who truly do get to work and play and be in place with their inspirational that truly improve one's mental and physical health versus those who simply don't have access and as a result uh, their lives potentially in some areas aren't as fulfilled uh, I, the answer the simple answer is yes but there's another part to the equation that I think we um, we should talk about and you know in our work we don't deal just with uh, with the solids uh, we deal with the voids as well and I use the expression voids in a in an endearing way because uh, basically we deal with the impact of what our buildings has on the spaces around it so you know buildings create um, places for people to live and work within but if done carefully and organized carefully within the built environment they create spaces for people to use external spaces public spaces and things like and, and uh, civic spaces and it's those spaces that I think uh, are where the greatest sort of interest lies in, in our work. It's not just in what, what we do inside a building, it's what we do on the edges of the building and how our buildings uh, uh, create or frame public spaces and make these spaces uh, accessible to everyone. And, and those spaces become sort of the the backbone of, of society. They become the spaces where we meet our friends in, they become the spaces in which our children can play in, they become the spaces where you and I can meet, have a coffee and all of a sudden spark a new idea and things like that. Because you know, no great idea um, or breakthrough in science or medicine or an industry has ever come from an individual sitting in a room in a building. It's come from a conversation between two people, you know, in a place where you're relaxed and you're exchanging things. And, you know, in that regard, our buildings can perform those roles through a different kind of nar spatial narrative. But our public spaces and the places where people come together for casual encounter are, are you know, those are the places that really, really change people's lives and influence the quality of people's lives and things like that. So. Um, there's a lot of thought in, in our world and in the work we do into what those spaces and places should be like and how they become universally accessible to everyone. Um, you know, how they're inclusive, how they contribute to a notion we have about fairness in cities, um, how they contribute environmentally um, uh, and in a whole variety of other ways to our daily life. And have you seen this philosophy filter down into more the public sector initiatives? So where there are more social housing or areas that aren't uh, as built up as the city of the West End, is this a philosophy that can withstand the pressures of stringent uh, financial stringent financial restrictions, uh, physical limitations on space, uh, or is it a methodology that really works in specific areas where there is the space, the resource, the money to deliver? such an infrastructure and a public space? No, I don't, I don't think so. I think they're, they're universally accessible to everyone. If you look at the great, you know, sort of public health or social public housing models that have been developed over years, um, you know, they have a, a wonderful mix of what, I, what we call the public and the private. 
right? And that mix is, is, has been carefully thought out to create these sort of wonderful uh, places. You know, these kinds of spaces take in, in, a, in dense urban environments, take the place of the front yard of a little of the house, right? Mm. You know, if you have a community with lots of front yards, it brought people together. They were the social hubs of, of the neighborhood. You know, the weather was nice. Everyone was outside together, coming together. If people, you know, you learned about your friends and your neighbors and even people you didn't know, you learned that some of them needed help. You learned that, you know, you know, one of your neighbors needed a job and all these other sort of things. And you could come together as a community to provide that kind of assistance and that resilience. And, you know, that model's moved on to a higher dense environment. But this notion of how you create resiliency in the community is centered around the spaces and places that we that are shared by everyone. And, and that's a big thing that, you know, we think a lot about. That's, I think, one of the, the one of the sort of raw edges that was exposed during COVID is that our communities, um, for one reason or another, were not resilient. And part of that resiliency, um, you know, was a lack of the kind of shared and public spaces and places, whether they be inside or outside, that members of the community could come together to support one another um, and meet one another and things like that. And so the models have existed for a long time. And, you know, we're just trying now to to make those models work at a super dense, different scale and in a different way. You mentioned COVID as an area that I wanted to bring up because COVID had a massive impact on the entirety of our lives. Um, and to a large extent, the way we, we work and live. And as you mentioned earlier, we work and live in physical buildings. From a real estate perspective, what do you think has been the biggest consequence of the past few years on the built environment what has it changed what has, what has it improved uh, or what challenges has it brought well i think we've learned that um well i'd like to think that we've learned that the uh stereotypical development model that's been rolled out um, in our cities uh, is dead. And I say that for both the office building, for a residential building, or for, for that any other kind, and that a new model is needed. Um, that new model needs to bring with it more inclusiveness, more shared spaces for people that, um, that don't just pay rent in the building. And I think that can exist very easily through, you know, how we use, use ground floor and other floors in the building or bring people into the building. That new model needs to bring with it a concept of spatial variety, which very much uh, didn't exist previously. Um, that new model needs to bring with it an underlying focus on health and well-being and something that I call a life-centric 
sort of model for future development and urban in the urban environment. Um, and so you can see that translating out into what the future of an office building might look like. You can see that in what the, what residential uh, development needs to look like, particularly around the live, work, play narrative that's so important uh, in our daily lives now and that we're demanding of our homes. Um, you can see that in the demands that we place on, on the need and desire for outdoor space, you know, in some form or another, the way we live, uh, et cetera, et cetera. The home is transformed. Now the home is, uh, is not just a place where we live. We may need to work there. It may need to be our gym. Um, you know, there may be, a, a, it's the connection to the metaverse. Uh, it's, there's all kinds of things about it that it now needs to provide. Um, and so I think the cookie cutter model of a X square feet for a two bedroom, a one bedroom, a this, that sort of thing, that's gone. You know, there's a flight to quality. That flight to quality is gonna be played out in every single aspect of consumer choice going forward. And it doesn't matter at what sort of band, economic, social economic band you're at, you're gonna fly to quality within that band. Um, no matter what. And I, I think that that that's happening. It's, it's going to happen more and more. Um, so it's going to mean a different approach, a different spatial model, uh, and a different narrative around how we build buildings and provide spaces that contribute to the community, but also contribute to what we call this sort of life-centric narrative. Are there conversations that you're having with clients today, <clears throat> pardon me, that you were not having three years ago? Are there some things that when you look upon now, you think, I can't believe we, we weren't discussing this pre-pandemic? Uh, something that is so seismic that uh, it feels odd that it may not have been on the table before this all happened. Uh, yes, they are. Um, they're uh, geographically interesting as to where they're occurring. But generally, overall, we are having those kind of conversations with, with our clients. Yeah. And there's a new, uh, there's a, uh, you know, there are new clients on the block, new people that have, um, you know, have thought about these things previously who are now seeking out, you know, uh, people to help them realize these sort of things. Um, I think anyone that's investing in real estate today, uh, its primary concern um, is going to be the longevity of that investment over a long term. And, um, you know, long, long term investments seem to be the ones that are really focusing on the sort of narrative for how these building, how, how their buildings and their investments will play out over the long term and how they um, can be transformed, right? Because what we build today, so for example, the model for an office building of, of today wasn't even thought about or talked about five, six years ago. Uh, similarly, in, in every aspect of residential uh, design that we're doing from ultra super luxe down to you know, the affordable housing we're doing in India, the conversations are very, very different than they were five years ago. And I, 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 I'm sure that five from years from now, they're gonna be different again. 
So if we're going to build something now that extracts a lot of resources from um, from the earth, and that's a slightly different conversation because we're trying not to do that anymore um, and, and doing a lot of interesting work around that. But if we're going to build things that 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 are extractive, that do use resource and do that, we want to build them so that we're not having the conversation in 25 years time that we're having now with a lot of the buildings is that they're they're just not fit for any purpose any longer, you know, some of them. And we want to create buildings that will have a long-term fit for purpose narrative that can be adjusted over time, reinterpreted, rethought, um, and and remodeled into something totally different than their original intention. Um, and so they're the kind of conversations we're having. You mentioned some some really salient points around how there's been a shift in how we want to engage with the built environment. <clears throat> and I presume uh, in most instances where you're instructed, it's on a new project, which gives you the benefit of potentially a, a blank sheet of paper. How does the rest of the built environment adapt, retrofit itself to meet these significant changes you mentioned? Is it really tough being in a landlord with, with stock that was built 10 years ago, 15, 20, 30 years ago? Is there hope to bring it to this, this vision that you've described? I think it depends. So I'm sitting in a bespoke 1930s listed uh, Art Deco office building in 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 east you know in the eastern fringe of the city of London right now, um, and it's a great great building to work in. You know, it's got uh, 360 degrees of of windows, great daylight, great volume. You know, the back then when uh, people designed buildings, regardless of what they were, they thought about it. They thought about the product they were creating. They put a lot of time and research into it. Uh, and um, in many instances, those buildings have, have longevity. Uh, I think it's interesting that that approach also is a negative approach. If you, know, you take highly, highly bespoke buildings that were designed for a very, very specific function at that point in time, they may long, no longer be very, very useful. So um, you've got to look at it quite carefully. But uh, I think what happened is over time, and particularly post-World War II, you know, lots of places in the world needed to build a lot of buildings very, very quickly. They built them very poorly. And the idea of volume um, that quality buildings have on the health and well-being of an individual, that wasn't thought about. People needed shelter, they needed homes, they needed things like that. Industries needed to be created and things like that. So a lot of those things, which are really, really important, were overlooked. Rightly or wrongly, they were overlooked. And so we're left with, and you know, not just here in the UK, but in America, uh, Italy is a particularly interesting one. We're in the 1970s. There's this vast, vast building boom uh, in office buildings and other types of buildings. And we're left now with pondering the future usefulness of a lot of these buildings. Um, and I think, you know, to a certain extent, because we, we, we do this quite often um, as well as new buildings, you have to take a step back, look at them, um, be very, very objective about you know whether or not 
if you pour resources into them, whether or not you're gonna be having the same conversation 15 years from now, or whether if you pour resources into them, you won't need to have that conversation for another 50 or 60 years, right? And if, if the answer is I'm gonna be having this conversation in 10 or 15 years, then we should replace the building with one that you know we won't need to be having the conversation for a very, very long time. And we should do that in a very low carbon way we should recycle and reuse the material that's coming from the building we're demolishing, and we should be innovative about the new building we built, but we should also future-proof it, make it you know, demountable and make it adaptable for the future. And I think that's a tough conversation to have, um, but they're the ones that need to be happening now, particularly when you start you know, thinking about a real estate market where they're going to rate investments environmentally uh, and all the other things, conversations that are going to be happening. Um, but there's a lot of, I think, you know, there's a lot of derelict housing stock that can be remodeled and renovated and put to good use for a lot less money than, um, than the new buildings uh, are. And that's something we should be doing. But there's also a lot of stock uh, in all categories of real estate that was poorly built um, that you know putting a lot of new resources into it not just money but environmental resources into it may not make sense when you look at the impact you know when you look at the impact of what you're going to end up with and where you might be faced i don't think we can kick the can down the road another you know and 10 years right we gotta we gotta kick the ball into the long grass, as you guys say here, um, uh, in terms of when you look at redeveloping something again that you're building new or remodeling, right? So, you know, I think that long period of time is what we need to be looking at because we can't just keep having the conversation on the subject, same subject every, every, every 10 years. Like I've got a toothache and I'm gonna wait a couple of years to get it extracted. So I go to the dentist, and he says, well, you know, it's going to hurt, but you can, I'm going to pull it out. Well, no. And then two years later, I'm back talking about the same tooth again. I think we, we can't do that any longer with our buildings. I think this is a natural segue into, into climate change. And <clears throat> many recognize that the built environment is responsible for a huge amount of emissions, both in its operation and in, in, and in its build and, and the, the process in which buildings are being built and how goods are transported. We are very much involved and hold a responsibility for climate change and carbon emissions. To what extent are you optimistic that the rhetoric around uh, making buildings sustainable can actually translate into meaningful results? And I say that by virtue of the fact that there are a lot of buildings in the world and that many are built very differently by different people, to different standards, different owners. Can we really ever reach the scale where the you mentioned a few initiatives that you uh, incorporate in terms of reducing your carbon footprint. That may be on a building, on five buildings. Are you confident that the industry as a whole globally can make an impact or are, are there only pockets of innovation that are happening? Well, I, I travel around the world and, I, and we build in many places. And the conversations in, in a lot of these uh, places 
um, are, are, are not the same. You know, it, it's very hard to tell uh, uh, um, people in uh, developing nations who rely on, you know, cheap concrete to build buildings that the carbon in the concrete is bad and you can't use concrete anymore, um, things like that. Um, and indeed, technologies, even in very, very advanced uh, countries that build uh, quite sophisticated buildings, you know, they rely on carbon intensive uh, tech techniques. And you can decarbonize materials to a degree you can decarbonize um, uh, processes and things like that. I mean, we're you know we're we're looking at all kinds of things with our PLP labs, the research group here. But at the end of the day, um, what it really comes back to is decarbonizing our grid, right? Uh, because and that that's a governmental thing. Because if I um, if I start to recycle material and I recycle material in a low energy uh, environment where I'm using where I'm not where I'm using renewable sources of energy to remanufacture things and I'm new using renewable sources of energy or green energy to manufacture building products and I'm using them to transport products to um, to a building site and I'm using them to erect the buildings things like that right so all of a sudden i've cut a huge amount of carbon out of the cycle right so i think it's there's there's a lot we can do as designers and and individuals when we sit and think about making a new building and that's as low carbon as possible but what we can't influence is the upstream carbon that if you start to insist that those things are made in a low carbon environment, then the price becomes quite prohibitive. So the answer for me it is, it's not a simple answer, but in part, we should be doing all of those things we're doing. And indeed, you know, I sit on the board of an Indian real estate company and we've, we're working to decarbonize our construction, right? But we can't totally decarbonize where we're getting, where our materials are coming from and how they're made. Uh, but we can decarbonize our construction process and stuff like that. Interesting things going on by interesting people. But when it comes all the way back to it is that governments have to work really, really hard to decarbonize their grids, right? And that um, is just not happening in enough places in, in, in enough time. I, I, Went to a conference a few weeks ago. I was invited to one in, uh, in Saudi Arabia, actually, interesting enough. And I really think that there's some interesting things coming out of the investments that, that are being made there around, um, around hydrogen and alternative sources of fuel. And, you know, I, I, it, it looks like there's, there's going to be a great many great breakthroughs and, and those sort of things in the future. But we can do a lot, but I, I really, really have come to the conclusion that we need to, you know, we need our governments to work to start to de really, really start to decarbonize um, our grids. 
And I guess to an extent, the UK has made reasonable strides in, in that. Um, and so that, that, that's, 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 I guess, on the positive side. But look, I, I, I think um, the climate change thing, we've hit a tipping point already. And I don't think we're going to, you know, we're going to be able to, to reverse that. The question is how we cope with it, how we adjust what we do to build our more resilient cities and how we don't hit the next tipping point or the, the, the third tipping point, which will make a lot of a lot more things that are happening now irreversible and will make urban life as we know it um, a very, very different. So, you know, um, it's here to stay. Uh, the climate change stuff, and and um, it's we need to just you know accept that, but we need to understand why it happened, and we need to avoid it that next tipping point and the one thereafter as well. And 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 you you made a, a passing reference to PLP labs, and, and clearly technology plays a huge part uh, in how uh, we can innovate to. Uh, adapt to climate change and also minimize our impact on, on the climate. Uh, how did that internal uh, internal or, or or linked part of the business evolve? And I suspect as part of your lifelong your lifelong learning uh, that is innate within you and always being aware of trends and technology. How did that manifest into something meaningful? And can you talk about what it what it does in in in, in a day to day sense? Yeah, I, I think it came out of, you know, a lot, we, we, I mean, we have a group here, very fortunate to work with a lot of talented people, but they're also very curious people. Um, and so the research group helps, you know, spark that curiosity. Um, but we also found that um, it enabled us to have access in a collaborative way, um, to really, really bright minds around the world. Because if I come to you and say, Michael, I want to collaborate with you on a research project, you know, you're going to open your your mind and your door, your heart, and, and your you know your your the things you've been doing uh, in the spirit of a collaboration that's open uh, and that's open source and that has a lot of benefits down the line. Uh, if I come, you know, if I'm seen as a competitor to you, as another architect or another someone trying to steal a piece of commercial action, well, then the door, you know, the door is closed, right? So the lab side really is a way to basically say, look, we want to have uh, uh, open dialogue, open collaboration. We'll contribute resources, time, money you know, whatever it takes to help with this collaborative um, process. And it's opened up an enormous world to us where we're, you know, we've got this great thing going on with the University of Cambridge around low carbon materials and timber. And we've got this brilliant PhD student, or she's no longer a student, PhD doctorate, who um, has, has just finished her PhD that sits in our office in our studio a couple of days a week and we're talking to neuroscientists and we're doing things using wearable technology to assess the impact of health and well-being on people thought pieces around culture and art and um, all sorts of other things um, 
and it's it's in it's raising you know it's helping us it's helping our clients it gives us a you know a lot of things to talk to our clients about but it also allows us to publish thought pieces that you know people can comment on and people can learn from and people can come back and say look hey i have an interesting idea around that um can we can we can we can we talk about it and we've just finished a really interesting uh set of um projects for lg the consumers uh you know the um the korean uh company that designs huge numbers of consumer products and we did that around um around things for the home um and uh it was particularly interesting because our role was to help them design a new generation of tvs but to do that we had to learn all about the way people live and how they use a tv um and it led us to do all this research the labs guys do all this research on the way people use their homes so as a result of this we jointly published with lg something we call the home report which has nothing to do with the television or any of that sort of stuff but it has to do with the way people live now post covid and things like that and so that kind of you know research based uh, approach to design has huge collateral benefits we've we've found um so yeah, I, and you know it's very exciting for us and i have to say it's it's you know it's an attractor to our practice people you know are really really drawn to to it as a place that they want to spend some time and so in addition i mean it sounds it and i think and i know people can't see you but there's a, a visible enthusiasm that comes in your face when talking about it uh, and it seems really yeah. exciting uh, in addition to the research side, do you as a team, as an organization, as a practice, uh, incorporate technology into how you operate? So things, whether it's VR or AR, uh, in terms of uh, looking at buildings, walking through buildings, designing buildings, uh, these tools are becoming far more uh, used on the professional side and the consumer side. I'm wondering whether you, when you're working on a project, will adopt any systems to help you with your role. Yeah, so the the labs um, deals with three things: people, places, and technology. And I guess that technology is is the one we should talk about. So uh, it deals with how we use uh, known technologies uh, in in more innovative ways to uh, improve the way we interface with the built environment. Um, for example, you know, take the edge in Amsterdam, where we were able to connect technology platform, smart building platform to a spatial model. And that's really, really exciting. Um, but it also has to do with the development of digital tools that we can use to help our creativity or the adoption of digital tools that are available to us to help, um, to, help the creative process. Um, there's an AR group here, a VR group, uh, AR, VR group here. Um, Lots of people doing other things. Uh, you and I met around a discussion on the metaverse, um, and you know we're 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 quite quite interested in interested in its potential as a um, as a learning and information platform for uh, for what we're doing. Um, and so yeah, there's there's a lot around technology that that we we um, we embrace. We do not think of it as a um, 
as a problem solver uh, alone on its own. So, I mean, if you we think of it in our buildings as something that if it's connected to the right spatial model, it can be a very, very, very powerful combination. Um, but if you have the wrong spatial model and the most innovative tech platform in it, um, it's not going to be a great place to be. Uh, and if you have the right spatial model now and you don't look at the power that technology has to leverage that, you know, you're you could to the right sort of uh, technology and technology platforms and things like that. Um, so, yeah, I think the combination of the tool for us is really, really, really quite, quite interesting in, in our work and getting there and using technology to help conceptualize that and visualize that is something we're very, very you know, passionate about. Um, and for me, it's interesting because it, you know, there are a lot of, there are a number of generations that are younger than me that are far more versed with it, but as part of this sort of lifelong learning uh, uh, issue, I, I think it's very interesting for me personally as well. And you touched on it and uh, very disappointingly, we're reaching the end of our conversation in a few minutes. So I do want to touch on, on, on the metaverse. Uh, it has many definitions and it means many things to many people. Uh, if we just refer to it in, in this sense as uh, individuals uh, engaging in virtual spaces, uh, what about that interests you? Or what about that creates an interesting conversation starter? So I think for me, the interest is in, is in the word engagement, right? And that's where I become curious about it. Um, and obviously, you can, you know, we're at a point where it, that whole uh, industry is at a point where you can imagine the potential of that sort of in engagement. You know, it's like everything else. It's like, you know, look at how, how much, you know, the smartphone has changed in 10 years time or something like that in terms of connectivity and engagement and things like that. And you can dial back to almost any kind of emerging platform or technology uh, and just understand, you know, how if it's, you know, if there's enough investment in it, if there's enough interest in it and there's enough exploration around its potential, you know, it, it can have huge, huge other types of uh, applications in, in the future. So the engagement side is where I first became really interested in it. And I guess in part of the work we do, you know, the a lot of the luxury brands and other people that we work with um, using it as a point of engagement um, for consumer engagement, things like that. What sort of began to spark um, my curiosity is its potential. So, you know, if you pause for a moment then think about what we do, um, designing and building a building, physical side of it, it takes a long time. Uh, it takes a very, very long time. And explaining um, it and the benefits of it and also exploring the potential of it 
before it's built is limited unless you, you know, sort of take the sort of physical and merge it with the digital, right? So this digital type of thing. So for me, I, I, I'm quite interested in it as a, a form of engagement going forward for, as part of a creative process, but also as a place where you can test, explore, and debate um, new and different ideas around the built environment. And you know, we're, we're not there by any means yet, but that's where I'm sort of hoping to, that's where our, my interest and some of our interests kind of lie in, in it. So it's around it, the future possibilities of engagement around the built environment, around testing ideas, around debate about the physical manifestation of some of these things and around informing the creative process, right? I mean, we have clients that uh, in um, some of the um, Southeast Asian markets that are using the metaverse as ways to connect with their uh, potential uh, buyers of, you know, residential properties and things like that. Um, and we have other clients and brands that are using it as a way to create awareness of their brands, not just for entertainment, but for actually disseminating information and knowledge and things like that. Um, but leveraging it beyond that is where I, where I get really interested in it. Right? That's where I get really interested. Is it a platform to, to test to test ideas about the physical environment um, within the digital world? So you, you can very much see how things like digital twins play a big part in that explorative stage of of uh, project and how you can identify issues before they manifest as problems and also get to to, to grips with uh, how a space might feel before it's built. If we if we sort of Bring it back to some of the early yeah. conversations around uh, space having, you know, uh, an important purpose in terms of giving people this uh, an enhanced experience of living. Does any part of you feel that with people potentially more time in virtual spaces, it democratizes good design? That uh, I may live in a in a small space that isn't aesthetically pleasing and doesn't inspire, but potentially I could put on. Uh, either an augmented reality headset or a virtual reality headset and get to a point where I get to experience world-class design, which otherwise would be foreign to me? Yeah, I think that's 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 part of a, of a learning process. I don't know, that may change your life for a short period of time, but the other thing that, that can enable you to do is to become a commentator on those sort of things and to help inform, you know, to help inform design of um, of spaces that aren't super luxury, right? And that that's where I sort of I think it can do all those things that um, that that you say, and that's a moment of enjoyment and experience and learning. But I think it can also go beyond that. Whereas if if I'm someone that's taking part in that kind of an experience, I may have some very very good observations. And I should have a way of communicating them to to people who are involved in actually creating these the physical uh, manifestations of these, because you know we learn from we learn from lots of different uh, sources, and um, you know as I say, one of our biggest ways of learning is through having conversations with people, 
we learn from having an exchange of ideas with one another and with conversations with another. And I think if you think about, you know, that's limited to physic being physically accessible to have these conversations. Um, whereas if you can have these kind of conversations with a wide variety of people from around the world, you know, through putting a headset on and connecting into the metaverse and 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 being able to look at things and debate them and experience them and transform them, um, it can contribute an immensely to uh, a, a, a knowledge bank that we, we, we need to design future buildings. It, it, it's hard to know how much of the future is going to be virtual, how much is going to be physical. Um, you're still very much designing spaces that encourage human interaction. I suspect you don't see a future where human interaction is ever superseded or improved by virtual. I, yeah, that's a tough one for me um, because my my work is uh, so much about the, the physical at the moment. Um, I do see a point in time where the virtual becomes a much, much stronger tool for testing the, the, the physical um, and um, becomes more and more valuable uh, around it. So if we get, if we dial it back to, you know, the commitment of resource and, um, environmental impacts and all the things that the act of physical building has on 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 a city or on the, the environment or on the planet and we get back to the point we were conversating earlier part of the conversation we're having we have to make sure we get it right um, and that it has a future and that it can be adaptable and flexible for me um, spending time with people in the digital world or in the world of the metaverse, talking about debating, testing, and looking at these things, you know, living in them and spending time in them and things like that, can can create very, very important and valuable um, information and learning that can, you know, that can help us avoid some of the mistakes we're making. And you know, it is it's a place where we can really have we can realize things quickly as opposed to over a long period of time where we can test them, where we can debate them, where we can democratize them. Um, and we can learn from that. And you know, we might choose to spend all of our time in that world, but we also might choose to use it as a, a platform for making sure that when I take the, the, that headset off, the world that I'm in, is a better one and a more suitable one for me and for my, you know, for our children and for their, you know, for their, their children's children, et cetera. So I think that's the that's quite interesting for me that the potential there because we don't actually have that ability at the moment, right? It feels like there's an awful weight of responsibility on the individuals who are shaping our built environment. You know, you mentioned it, you know, we're born, we learn, we live, we die. We're so intertwined with the physical space in which we 
interact with. There feels to be a great weight of uh, expectation and responsibility of practitioners to deliver space that really enhances our lives. And, and, and that definitely comes across in, in this conversation. We're, we're, we're virtually out of time. Uh, and so I think maybe my, my last sort of question for you is, reflecting on what's been an extensive career, and as you alluded to, involves lots of traveling around the world and being involved in amazing projects. What can you point to a project or an aspect of a project that you found most fulfilling? So not the best project you've worked on, but has there something that has fulfilled you more than others because potentially of the impact it made beyond it being an aesthetically impressive building or a commercially successful one? I, yeah, it's an interesting question. People ask me this all the time, and I normally give them the same answer that I, I'm often very reluctant to comment on individual projects and their successes, or in fact, their failures. And I, my greatest enjoyment out of everything uh, we do and I do is seeing how the buildings that we do uh, contribute in a small part to a larger um, assemblage of buildings and spaces and places and communities. Um, and um, that for me is where I get the most enjoyment and the most uh, um, reward. Um, you know, we spent uh, 15 or 16 or 17 years a uh, long time uh, working on a development in the city of London, uh, where we started as a master plan, and then we built you know, one building, it's called the Heron Tower, um, and we envisioned a series of other things happening around it, and that's now finished. And you know that the spaces that are around these buildings that we created are going to become over time highly used, highly desirable, highly interesting places for lots of people to use and to meet in and to, to enjoy. And it's become a, a sort of really, really small contribution to a larger you know, infrastructure and ecosystem of spaces and places in the city. Um, and that's kind of really rewarding. And in a similar manner, some of the things we're doing uh, at, um, next to the Tate Modern at Bankside Yards you know, there are eight spaces and eight buildings. And for me, the rewarding part will be the sort of the collection of them all and the contribution they make to the area. Um, similarly, things were like that that we're doing in Tokyo. We've got a really interesting building in Singapore where every person that lives in the building lives in their own garden, right? Wow. And so that's, that's kind of um, kind of where, we, where I get my... Uh, delight from it. And in Tokyo, we're, we're making a project that's connecting one part of the city to another part that's never happened before, right? And a, a new two and a half hectare public space and things like that. So those are the kind of things that um, you know, are really exciting um, for, for me. So it's less about the individual uh, actor or building, it's more about the uh, the contribution that makes you know we're having interesting conversations re rethinking how you build um, forms of social housing in India right now with uh, very very interesting entrepreneurial individual uh, there um, so those are the kind of things that are exciting 
there are a few industries that impact our lives so much as real estate and that there are a few people uh, who are as influential on that industry as someone yourself so i really appreciate uh the hour you have uh given me uh, i could have asked a thousand more questions and that flew by very quickly uh thank you for all the candid responses and for providing me with a lot more insight into uh, not only what drives you but what is clearly the uh, and the, the themes that uh, permeate your business now you operate so thank you very very much for your time it's been a pleasure talking to you thank you mike it's a great pleasure talking to you as well thank you very much thank you thank you for listening to pixel chasing and well done making it right to the end if you enjoyed today's episode, feel free to share with others who you think might also enjoy it. And to be kept up to date with all they're up to here, you can always follow us on the usual channels. On Twitter, we are at Pixel Chasing. On Instagram, we are at Pixel Chasing. And if you want to join our newsletter to be kept up to date with all future episodes, you can join that on our website, which is pixelchasing.com. Thank you. See you next time.